Hello and welcome to the menu. Monocle's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Marcus Hippi. This week we are in Sao Paulo to meet Telma Shiraishi, one of the city's greatest names for Japanese food. This search for my roots in Japan and what my grandparents brought to Brazil, I start this work to rescue this history of what the immigrants had to do here in Brazil. And here in London, one of the capital's biggest names in Italian cuisine, Theo Randall, tells us about his store cupboard essentials. These are all ingredients that I have in my store cupboard, you know, currently. So it's, it's something I always use. And I've always cooked that way, looking into the larder to what there is. And then cooking, you know, being inspired by something like the tomatoes or the breadcrumbs or the porcini mushrooms. All that, the week's headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too, ahead in this episode of The Menu. Sao Paulo is one of Latin America's top destinations for Japanese food, which is in big part thanks to Brazil hosting the largest Japanese community outside of Asia. One of the most appreciated names in Sao Paulo's Japanese cooking is Telma Shiraishi. She's the woman behind Aizome Restaurant. She also works as a chef at the Japanese consulate in the city and was the first woman to win a prize from the Japanese government for promoting the country's cooking outside Japan. She met Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco at her restaurant to discuss how one Japanese pastry became iconic in Brazil. So iconic, as a matter of fact, that even local politicians want to get their pictures taken eating one. Let's have a listen. Tell me, before we talk about your career and your amazing restaurant, I want to ask you about pastel, which is a classic Brazilian snack. And, you know, even during a political campaign, all the politicians, they like to eat, you know, to show they're a man of the people or a woman of the people. Tell us about pastel. What's, what's the story there? I think there's a connection with the Japanese migration to Brazil, right? Yes, and uh, I think that pastel is one of the most popular uh, street foods that we have. And uh, as you said, the politicians, now that they're in campaign, uh, they appear on TV and they like to be with people and they are in the street market and eating a pastel. And it started with the Japanese immigrants, but uh, the story is a little complicated. A lot of experts, they say that pastel sometimes is based on the European recipes, you know, the Portuguese, and sometimes Italian and French recipes. They all have uh, one version or another of their own snack, very similar to pastel. But the story that we know is that is uh, the Chinese, they had the spring rolls, no? And uh, since uh, late the 19th century, the Chinese immigrants, they used to serve the spring rolls in their restaurants, but it wasn't so much popular. It was very restricted to their community. But uh, after World War II, uh, you know, the Japanese were considered uh, enemies, and uh, Brazil 
was in the in opposite side with Japan. And the Japanese immigrants, they suffered a lot of prejudice here in Brazil. And uh, they lost their business. They lost uh, a lot of things that they have uh, achieved and conquered here in Brazil. And a way to start a new business were these pastelarias, these houses where they start to make pastel, and they they think they were Chinese, because in Brazil they couldn't tell the difference between Chinese and Japanese. So for them it was easier to be known as Chinese instead of Japanese. And uh, they started with the recipes of spring rolls and gyoza, and they adjusted to, to the Brazilian. Uh, they, here we like much more the beef, so they changed the recipes. And uh, the crunchiness of the dough, they used to put sake, but here in Brazil, they adjusted to put cachaça. So you had a, a very crunch. Uh, dough, and when you deep fried, uh, then you had a, a successful recipe. So successful that uh, nowadays we can eat pastel in every street market. You know that in Brazil, the, the culture of the street markets is very strong. Uh, every person, uh, every housewife, he started the day going to a street market to buy the ingredients and it's very fresh and uh, you cannot go to a street market without eating a pastel and they taste the best i have to say as well because even their size they're quite large right uh, they, for people that don't never ate a pastel they're not like tiny little things they are quite uh, big the ones right from the street market yes people say it's a snack it's an appetizer but yeah. i would say no it's a very big and uh, i know people who goes to the street markets to have a pastel one or two or three for lunch and uh, in the side we have garapa which is uh, sugarcane juice. And have you ever made pastel, uh, Thelma? Or, I mean, I know it's not part of your menu, but do, have you ever made it? Yes. <laughs> you know that my thoughts and my research and what I like to present in my restaurants is all this story that we have in Japanese food and culture here in Brazil that was developed by the immigrants. Uh, this is my history as well. I am a grandchild of Japanese immigrants. My grandparents came from Japan. My parents, they both were born here in Brazil, and I'm the third generation. And uh, I like to think that my work is to present this history with these recipes and this history and this culture. And uh, we cannot go without making pastel as well. And uh, the Japanese, they love it. Mm -hmm. uh, when they try pastel, not only in the street markets, or, but uh, in my restaurant, they love it because it's really a very, very popular and savory and delicious dish. Which flavor do you like, actually? Do you like the meat one? 
I'd rather like uh, cheese mm -hmm. and the heart of palm. The heart of palm, mm -hmm. in particular, is a very particular Brazilian ingredient. But uh, you know that uh, you have a similar with the Japanese bamboo shoots. The texture and the taste and the idea, they are very similar. So I like to make these parallels of ingredients and flavors. And before we talk about Aizome, let's talk about the, the work you do to promote Japanese cuisine. You were one of the, I believe, the first kind of women to get a prize as well from, was it the Japanese government as well for promoting Japanese cuisine? T tell us a bit more. And I know you have a connection with the Japanese consulate here in Brazil as well. Yes, I'm the chef for the Japanese consulate here in Sao Paulo. And uh, in 2019, I was nominated by Japanese government as their ambassador for promoting Japanese food and culture. Um, one of the first and very few women in the world to have this title and uh, the first Brazilian as well to be nominated. You know that Japanese food Washoku, as we said, was recognized by UNESCO uh, as a humanitarian heritage. The Japanese government has nominated a lot of ambassadors from Japan and throughout the world to promote Japanese food and culture. And I was the first in Brazil and one of the first and a few women in the world. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. And your restaurant that we are actually here set, actually. Somebody's actually making food, which is quite nice. Uh, Aizume is super respected in Sao Paulo. And you tell me, you're telling me that it's celebrating 15 years already. It's amazing. Because, you know, let's be honest, Sao Paulo, there's a lot of Japanese food. I'm sure there's a lot of kind of competition. It's a very exciting, thriving place for Japanese food here. Yes, uh, Brazil, and particular Sao Paulo, has the greatest uh, Japanese community outside Japan. So yes, we have a lot of Japanese food. We have more Japanese restaurant than churrascarias or you'd say Italian restaurants. And uh, you can find sushi every corner. Uh, even in churrascarias, yes. you have a side or salad buffet, you have uh, sushi. And uh, I think that not only Brazil, but all through the world, you, you have this passion for sushi and this, in, this interest for Japanese culture. And I think that my work, it started with this commitment with the Japanese tradition and history. And when I started to work with Japanese cuisine, I notes that I had to go very deep because uh, I don't know if you were aware of this fact but uh, in Brazil the Japanese food that uh, has become very popular it came from California you know that uh, Brazil takes a lot of uh, business models from the United States and uh, it is similar with food. For a long time, uh, the Brazilian people had some prejudice against this, you know, exotic 
exotic uh, flavors and cuisines, and the Japanese was among these prejudices. And uh, it took a long, lot of time for Brazilian to start to have interest in, in the Japanese flavors. It was very difficult for them, you know, raw fish and the fermented food, and it was very exotic for them. Uh, and only when they start to bring the flavors, the Japanese cuisine, that they start to serve it in started in the United States and California. This is the kind of Japanese food that got popular here in Brazil. And when I opened Aizome, I thought that I had to rescue what my grandparents, they brought to Brazil and what we had to adjust to the Brazilian climate, the Brazilian ingredients, and you know, all this richness and the ingredients and the flavors that we have here in Brazil. And this is what we call Nikkei. The Japanese, but uh, that's made outside of Japan. L yes. Like you and your family, for example. Yes, this is my history. And uh, in Aizome, along with this search for, for my roots in Japan and what my grandparents brought to Brazil, I start this work to rescue this history of what the immigrants had to do here in Brazil. I think that this is my mark, per se. That's fantastic. And uh, Thelma, I just want to know now, I know you're, you have lots of projects coming up, and one of them is a partnership with uh, another very famous Brazilian chef, uh, Elena Rizzo, right? I wonder if you want to talk about it as well. I think that uh, we have to think about the Brazilian cuisine. You have a lot of diversity here, and uh, Brazil is a continental country, you know, the dimensions are so huge, and uh, you have so many history here, and not only the indigenous people, but all those immigrants from all over the, count, the, the world who came here. And uh, we have this melting pot of culture, of cuisines, and languages, and references. And uh, what I love to do is to work with other Brazilian chefs. They have their personalities, they have their own histories to tell, and uh, I like to invite them to come and cook with me in Aizome. And uh, so we have so many different menus and possibilities, and uh, this mix and match of, of flavors and recipes. And part of future, well, what I'm proud of when I talk about what we make here in Aizome is that I could open space and uh, the way for other women chefs and cooks to gain their own space here. And uh, particularly when you talk about Japanese cuisine, it's a very manly <laughs> environment. But uh, I think that I was very lucky because as we are here in Brazil, you have so many possibilities. I think that if I was in Japan, 
it would be much harder as a woman to achieve maybe all, all this recognition and the space. I have only one more question. And if someone comes to Aizome, perhaps someone that is not from Brazil, is there a dish you would recommend that you really like from the restaurant? Well, I have the Japanese traditional recipes. My favorite one is soba, the buckwheat noodles. I think that uh, that's very Japanese, and we like to make our own dashi. And uh, in our dashi, we like to mix Brazilian ingredients with Japanese ingredients. So I like to think that we have a Nippo-Brazilian dashi. And uh, what I like when I think about uh, some Nikkei food that we make here, maybe is when I take uh, some Brazilian fish, like the pita do cu, very typical from the Amazon River. And I prepare it the, a very traditional Japanese way. And I marinate it in sake and miso, and we grill it. And uh, you can make a very richer recipe with this mixture of ingredients and techniques. That was Telma Shiraishi speaking to Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Let's next get an update on what the food and drink industry is talking about. Here is Monaco's Carota Rebello with this week's headlines. A new Singapore-style food hall has opened in New York City and invited newly arrived migrants to apply for work. Urban Hawker told migrants, refugees and asylum seekers on social media this week that it is happy to hire them if they are keen and allowed. Located in the city's midtown, the venue is the brainchild of Singapore businessman KF Setho and features 17 Singaporean street food stalls. A European private equity firm will buy a majority stake in the Italian food and drink group Italy, with plans to further expand the business globally. Invest Industrial will acquire 52% of the family-run company. Italy launched in Turin in 2007 and has since opened branches in Paris, New York and a flagship store in London. India has sent its first shipment of vegan meat products to the United States. The consignment from food tech firm Greenest Foods contains 5,000 kilos of plant-based samosas, spring rolls and other plant-based products. Greenest is one of a growing number of Indian food technology firms producing alternatives to meat and dairy. And Brad Pitt has turned to a vineyard in France's Rhone Valley to source ingredients for his new skincare line. Products in the actor's Ludoman range contain organic matter that would normally be discarded after the grapes had been pressed. The packaging features reusable stoppers made with recycled wine barrels. Thanks, Carlosa. You are with the menu.
Fiorando is a master of Italian cooking in the UK, having been perfecting his craft for three decades now. But his new book Italian Pantry takes the country's cuisine back to basics, offering 100 recipes based on 10 store cupboard essentials. Monaco's Lillian Fawcett spoke to Theo about his latest book and where his love of Italian food began. She started by asking what his 10 key ingredients are and how he chose them. The ten staples are breadcrumbs, tomatoes, porcini mushrooms, parmesan, lemons, leafy greens, ricotta, polenta, honey and pine nuts. And the reason I chose them is because these are all ingredients that I have in my store cupboard, you know, currently. So it's, it's something I always use. And um, I grew up with a family that were completely obsessed about food. My mother was a brilliant cook. And we had a, she would call it a larder, but it was a, you know, what we call a pantry. And it was just full to the brim of all these wonderful ingredients. And so I've always cooked that way, looking into the larder to what there is. And then cooking, you know, being inspired by something like the tomatoes or the breadcrumbs or the porcini mushrooms. And how do you usually go about planning a new book? And with this one, was the concept clear from the very beginning? The concept was very clear because I really wanted to cook, you know, the, the show people the way I cook. And it's, I guess it's similar to the, my previous book, which is Italian Deli, but this is a bit more specific on the actual ingredients. And, you know, I, I always cook this way. And I think I just wanted to show people that, you know, you can be very frugal with your cooking. You know, things like breadcrumbs and a little bit of parmesan or, you know, some ricotta or some honey can make such a difference to a recipe. And it's not all savoury. There's lots of sweet recipes in there as well which is quite different to my other books. I mean, there's probably about 20 different sweet recipes. What are some of your favourite recipes from the books? You, you mentioned there, uh, and you talk in the introduction to the book, about driving around Italy uh, with your family and collecting food items that your mum would then take home and, and store in her own pantry. Did any of those experiences inspire recipes from the book? Well, there's loads that inspire from the book. I mean, you know, I, we kind of, we, on the way home from these sort of these amazing trips, our knees would be up to our chins with sort of bottles of olive oil and bottles of wine there. But there's lots of things. I mean, there's one dish that um, I, I love, which is the, uh, the focaccia with the Italian sausage and the greens, which it, it looks sort of really complicated, but it's not at all. I mean, focaccia is one of the easiest bread recipes to make. And it's one of those things you can make and just sort of put it in the table and everyone just sort of helps themselves. It's a very sort of family, family kind of lunch dish. Um, there's lots and lots of pasta recipes in there, which, uh, I, you know, I, I love making pasta. It's one of my, my son is obsessed about eating pasta and our cupboards are full of every variety of pasta you can imagine. So I'm always cooking pasta. And then, you know, there's, there's little things like, you know, there's a wild nettle and dandelion frittata, which... It's kind of quite a nice story. I mean, I, I, I live in northwest London near Primrose Hill and I'm always walking my nine-year-old Labrador around Primrose Hill and I have done for many, many years. And I'm always sort of, you know, you always sort of see things and I, when you see lots and lots of nettles and dandelion, you always, always get quite excited. So I kind of created a recipe of a frittata because frittata is, you know, a classic Italian dish made with eggs and a bit of Parmesan cheese. And this is just using wild nettles and dandelion, which I just picked up with some plastic gloves and you know, took it home, blanched them and chopped them up and made the most delicious frittata. So there's, there's a little bit of foraging in there as well. Is that one of the ways that you 
bring new ideas into your Italian cooking? Because I was actually going to ask, you know, Italian food is so popular around the world, obviously not just in Italy. So how do you kind of come up with new recipes in Italian cooking and, and innovate in, in what you do? Well, I mean, I stick to the sort of Italian kitchen basics, which is, you know, it's all about the ingredients and, and not overcomplicating things. Um, but, you know, I kind of see it in my sort of, you know, my way and, and, and I won't sort of re- try and recreate some sort of wonderful classic dish. I'll just sort of maybe do a version of something or I might use, you know, the cooking technique of one dish and, and just use slightly different ingredients. But I'll always respect the Italian kitchen. I'm never going to sort of try and try and do it, you know, a terrible carbonara or something. I'm always going to try and make exactly as authentic as possible. And, you know, I portray that in my restaurant as well. You know, we do a monthly regional menu, which is a celebration of dishes and wines from a specific region of Italy. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very um, classical when it comes to Italian food. How did you get started cooking Italian food? Well, I originally trained in French food. I worked uh, with a great chef called Max Magari in a restaurant called Chez Max, and I did my sort of three-and-a-half-year apprenticeship with him. And then I came across um, the River Cafe from a great man called Alice Little, who sadly passed away recently, who's recommended me to go to the River Cafe. And I met Rose and Ruth. We got on extremely well. And I started working there um, a month later. And I was there for 15 years, apart from a sabbatical, when I went off to Chez Panisse, which was another huge inspiration but um yeah i'm in you know that that was a, that was a great great time in my life and a great inspiration and you've been focusing on italian cooking for if i'm right in thinking about three decades now <laughs> how, that's a nice bit <laughs> how has the food that you cook or that you eat in italian restaurants changed in that time well, I think if you go to Italy, the food in Italy hasn't changed at all, which makes it so wonderful. I mean, I remember meals back in Italy 20 plus years ago and, you know, you're still, still getting the same delicious food cooked in the same delicious way, probably by, you know, a relative of the person that cooked it originally. So uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't change that much. And I think that's what's so special about Italian food is there is a certain style and it's not sort of particularly innovative in some ways, but I kind of like that because it just shows that there are ingredients. I mean, if you look at Italy as a country, it's 20 different regions and each region has specific ingredients and they have specific recipes. And I think, you know, if you can take that style and use that style to create recipes, then you, you can create delicious food. And it's very much a less is more. But when you have less is more in food, you have to make sure the ingredients are absolutely pristine and in perfect condition. And that's what you get in Italy. And, you know, there's amazing markets in Italy where you've got the most incredible selection of ingredients. And I think people cook in a different way than we do here. But, um, yeah, Italian food is, is, as you can probably tell, is quite special to me. So that would be your key bit of advice, would it, with cooking Italian food, is that it's the quality of the ingredients that's really key? Well, we're quite lucky now. We've got some amazing farmer's markets. I mean, I was in one yesterday and, you know, there was an incredible array of courgettes and tomatoes and Swiss chard and some things that you probably wouldn't necessarily see, um, you know, 10 years ago. But now we've got, we're quite spoiled for choice in this, as far as ingredients. And I think the thing about Italian food is all about cooking seasonally. They'd never cook things out of season because they just wouldn't find those ingredients. They just wouldn't bother buying them. What cookbooks do you take inspiration from? Well, there's lots of cookbooks I take inspiration from, um, particularly sort of old Italian ones. I mean, Cucina Salentina is a, is a cookbook that I absolutely adore. Um, and then there's obviously the kind of Marcella Hazan cookbooks, which are kind of simple and you know, they kind of inspire you just to sort of reading the title. Uh, I love Chez Panisse cookbooks. I've, you know, obviously worked at Chez Panisse. Chez Panisse desserts is one of the best 
pastry cookbooks ever written, I think. But my favourite cookbook of all is Venus in the Kitchen by Norman Douglas, who inspired Elizabeth David to write. And he lived on the island of Capri in the 50s and was cooking the most extraordinary food. It's a book all about aphrodisiacs, and I'd highly recommend it to anyone that's interested in food. There's lots of stories in there. The recipe's ridiculous. There's one recipe where he gets a kilo of black truffles and puts them in with some potatoes and about a, half a kilo of butter and bakes it in the oven. I mean, it's just like, it's kind of, kind of really very, very luxurious. But that's a really great book. And that book means a lot to me because my mother gave, it to, gave me an original copy um, on my 18th birthday. So I, I could go on for hours about cookbooks, as many of them. And are you still learning about Italian cooking after all these years cooking I, it? You never stop learning about Italian food. I mean, as I said, there's 20 regions of Italy. There's so many different recipes. There's so many wonderful things to find. And the thing about Italy is not just about, you know, the classic recipes. It's about the people. It's about the country. It's about the ingredients. There's Whenever you go to Italy, you always find something inspiring. And, you know, they're always trying to make food better than ever. And just finally, have you got any plans for the next book? What's next for you? Well, I have actually, funny you should say, I'm actually in the middle of writing the next one. <laughs> and uh, there's quite a few vegetable recipes in this book, but the next book is definitely going to be vegetable-based, I mean, entirely. So um, not, not, not vegan, but it's going to be a book all about vegetables, similar concept um, with 10 different vegetables, with 10 recipes per vegetable. So look out for that. Theo Randall there speaking to Monaco's Lillian Fawcett. His new book, The Italian Pantry, is out now. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Portland, Oregon. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods for Great Recipes. And obviously, you will also find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is all with You're Not Alone. Thanks for listening.